0: This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation.
1: Franklin, the cuttlefish, she had a really frequent habit of drenching me in the morning when I walked past uh, and she only squirted me in the morning when experiments were taking place but would refrain from squirting at me in the evening when I would be in the lab to feed her dinner. So I guess the selective squirting made me wonder whether the cuttlefish had simply learnt to associate my morning visits with something she didn't like or whether there was an element of self-control and planning involved. and I guess the self-control answer that, that they do have the capacity to exert self-control, was very surprising.
0: That's Dr. Alexandra Schnell, whose research suggests that cuttlefish have the ability that some children have to resist temptation. The account of that research went viral a couple of months ago, and so we couldn't resist the temptation to invite her on Science Clear and Vivid. We wanted to know how she discovered that cuttlefish have self-control and what that means for how we should think about them. This is really going to be fun because you you seem to have discovered that the lowly cuttlefish has self-control to some extent, right? That you used the marshmallow test on it. Yeah. And what did you find?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. So we essentially adapted the Stanford Marshmallow Test, which was designed to test whether children uh, had any willpower and can sustain a delay for a better but delayed reward. Uh, But instead of giving cuttlefish marshmallows, we offered them different types of shrimp. Uh, And of course, we cannot tell cuttlefish to wait, so instead we presented the cuttlefish with shrimp in different chambers within their tank and then trained them to learn that one chamber offered prey that was immediately available and the other chamber offered prey that uh, was better quality but it was only available after a delay and so the cuttlefish in our study tolerated delays uh, to obtain better prey for up to 50 to 130 seconds which was comparable to what we see in some large brain vertebrates.
0: What other animals uh, other than humans have been tested?
1: Quite a diverse range of animals have been tested, but the level of self-control varies across species. So, for instance, animals like rats, uh, chickens and pigeons, they find it difficult to resist temptation and have relatively lower levels of self-control, so they only wait for several seconds, whereas animals such as chimpanzees, crows and parrots show more advanced self-control and they can wait up to several minutes for food of better quality or quantity. So the fact that our cuttlefish uh, showed comparable levels of self-control to this latter group of animals was was very surprising.
0: So th- these are cephalopods, which means they have eight arms?
1: They all have eight arms. The octopus, cuttlefish and squid all have eight arms, but cuttlefish and squid have an extra two um, feeding tentacles that are usually retracted inside their mouths Uh, and they only project them out when they're hunting for food.
0: It's very important to me to know. Do they bite you if they get annoyed?
1: If you get too close within their personal space, they will try and bite you, yes.
0: They seem to have definite opinions. I'm thinking of the cuttlefish that used to spit at you when you would start mm. come in to do an experiment.
1: That anecdotal story was it inspired me to, to test for self-control because um, Franklin, the cuttlefish, she had a really frequent habit of drenching me in the morning when I walked past, uh, and she only squirted me in the morning when experiments were taking place but would refrain from squirting at me in the evening when I would be in the lab to feed her dinner. So I guess the selective squirting made me wonder whether the cuttlefish had simply learnt to associate my morning visits with something she didn't like or whether there was an element of self-control and planning involved. And I guess the self-control answered that, that they do have the capacity to exert self-control.
0: Did you also try experimenting at a different time?
1: Uh, I did, yes. I moved Uh. around and um, I think as long as you kind of kept... Franklin on her toes, then I would stay relatively dry.
0: <laughs> how did she get the name Franklin?
1: My um, in summer intern actually named all the cuttlefish, and I think Franklin was named after Benjamin Franklin.
0: Oh, nice! <laughs> so, how did you do the test? You did. You couldn't do it the way Walter Michel did it when he invented mm-hmm. the marshmallow test because mm-hmm. he was working with kids and he could ask them he could actually explain to them that if you wait
1: mm-hmm. you can
0: get two cookies instead of one or two marshmallows instead of one I knew mm-hmm. Walter and he and, I, and mm-hmm. he uh, he was so interesting because he wanted to make it clear to everybody that although it seemed to predict more success in your education and possibly later in life if you could, delay gratification. He he wanted to make it clear that you could actually teach children to delay gratification and get the same effect. Mm-hmm. Or, as you pointed out, I think, if you are engaged in a social interaction and, and can be helped by mm-hmm. others. So do social animals other than us do that?
1: So, yes. The, I mean, our main understanding of of how or why self control evolved uh, comes from long lived and social species. And that's because the benefits for those types of species are really obvious. So, for example, apes and brainy birds, including crows and parrots, uh, they are long lived and social. And they might resist temptation in the present moment to obtain better outcomes in the future. And that helps them live a longer life. These groups of animals might also resist eating before their social partner to strengthen social bonds and also in hope of maybe receiving reciprocated favours from their social partner in the future. And then self-control might, have also be, uh, might, have, might also be a result of tool building. So apes, crows and parrots, they build and use tools. They might need to resist hunting or foraging in the present moment so that a functional tool can be built to optimise their hunting behaviour. And, I mean, all three kind of theories have been proposed as to what has driven um, self-control to evolve in the animal kingdom. But I guess the the really interesting thing is is that those rules that I just outlined, they don't apply to cuttlefish. Um, So that's why it was really surprising to see comparable self-control in these animals. But cuttlefish, they're short-lived, for one. They're not social. And they don't build or use tools.
0: So, when Walter Michelle was working with children and, and figured out the marshmallow test, he could talk to them and explain the, the situation. You couldn't do mm-hmm. that with cuttlefish. Mm-hmm. How, did, how did you determine that they had this ability? Mm-hmm.
1: So, that's a great question. Yeah. I mean, with, Comparative psychologists, we always have to think outside the box because we can't verbally communicate with our subjects. So the first step was to figure out um, the food preferences of our individual subjects. And when we found uh, a hierarchy of food preferences for each individual subject, we then used their first preference and their second preference in that hierarchy. Then we trained them to learn that. Chambers that we would place inside their tank, they were clear perspex chambers so they could see through them, uh, had different types of accessibility. One chamber that was marked with a particular visual symbol, say it might be a square, uh, that meant that the chamber would be immediately opened the minute you would put food inside it. And another chamber, say this one might be marked with a triangle, that chamber would only open after a delay once you put the food inside. And so we trained them with these individual chambers. At first, the cuttlefish would swim straight up to the chamber and try and attack the food inside because they could see through the chamber. It's just clear perspex. Uh, And then over time, they then learned that the visual symbols meant different types of accessibility. So they would wait for the delayed chamber until the door would open. They wouldn't approach it. And then in the immediate chamber, they would swim up to it uh, very quickly and retrieve the food inside. So once we were uh, happy that the the cuttlefish had learnt these different types of accessibility, then we gave them an option or or a a situation where they had to make a decision. So we presented them with two chambers, the the, the chamber that opened immediately or the delayed chamber. And in the chamber that opened immediately, we always put the food that they preferred uh, only second. So their second preference was always placed in their immediately open chamber, whereas in the delayed chamber was uh, there was always their first preference. And so they had to make a decision whether to go for their second preference food that was immediately available, or whether they had to resist temptation and wait for their preferred food item, even though that chamber only opened after a delay. And the the thing is, is that the cuttlefish could only choose one of the two prey items. So once they swam up to one chamber, the food in the other chamber was immediately removed. So a little bit trickier than just being able to tell a child that they had to wait for a second marshmallow, (laughs) but they got there in the end.
0: It's striking that you've found that cuttlefish can learn <laughs> or are capable of resisting temptation mm-hmm. when so many humans aren't.
1: <laughs> this is true. And like I said before, the rules don't apply to cuttlefish as to why we think self-control even evolved in the animal kingdom. So in the, in the paper, we speculate that cuttlefish potentially evolved self-control to fine-tune their eating habits. So cuttlefish, they spend the majority of their time camouflaged. They remain motionless during camouflage to avoid detection by predators.
0: What do they? And what these, do they appear as? They look like rocks or what?
1: So during camouflage, they try and uh, blend into their surroundings. They can match the brightness of the substrate. They can uh, even match the mottled or disruptive patterns of the substrate to really blend in. They can also, what you just described. Um, as masquerade they can masquerade as different objects whether that's algae or rocks uh, or they can even mimic in other animals that's more common in octopuses but it happens Uh, and you know whereas mimicking and masquerading often involves motion camouflage when they're trying to blend in with their surroundings does not and that helps them avoid detection by predators and they spend long bouts of time in camouflage and they're only broken when the animal needs to eat. So yeah. we suggest that perhaps they evolve self-control to optimize their hunting excursions, you know, they're waiting for better or better quality or preferred food.
0: In order to eat, they have to give up their hiding strategy. Exactly. Dart out, grab something quickly and get back in. Exactly. So so it's sort of built in to delay your gratification and to delay your hunting.
1: Potentially. So
0: what, what's different about chickens? Why don't chickens do it?
1: We don't know. I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I was expecting similar self-control times or you know maximum waiting times to what we see in rats, chickens and pigeons. Because before I started thinking about why self-control would evolve in these very fast-growing mollusks, Um, I just thought, well, they need to reach the size of a hatchling, which is about the size of a fingernail to, you know, about the size of a small dog in one and a half years or two years so that, that they can then mate and then after they mate, they die. So why would an animal that needs to grow so fast evolve the ability to resist temptation And so that's that I thought I expected them to show similar uh, waiting times to chickens. But they went and surprised us. And it could be because of their need to constantly be protected uh, and they want to really restrict their exposure to predators.
0: What do you want to study next? You want to find out more about these uh, these critters you've been working with, or do you want to switch to uh, another animal? What, what what's next on your list?
1: <laughs> uh, I also do study uh, crows, uh, members of the crow family, uh, mainly jays, and I do comparisons between the cephalopods and and the um, this bird family. So I'm studying both of them, but I am still very interested in continuing my research with cuttlefish, particularly because there's one question that I'm still really intrigued by. So besides the anecdotal inspiration that I uh, described before with squirting a Franklin that um, inspired me to test for self-control, there's another reason why I wanted to test for self-control, and that's based on... Uh, some previous findings that we found in cuttlefish. So a few years ago, some of my colleagues, uh, including Professor Nikki Clayton and, and Dr Christelle Josette-Alves, they discovered that cuttlefish could retrieve unique memory experiences, remembering specific past events based on what happened where and when, and they were able to use that to fine-tune their foraging. So it was once thought that episodic memory was... Unique to humans, but this type of memory uh, has since been discovered in rodents and crows and parrots and apes and now, of course, cuttlefish. Now, recollecting past memories is thought to have evolved in humans so that they can plan for the future. So the memories essentially act as a database to predict future events. So, seeing as cuttlefish can remember past events, I wondered whether they could also plan for the future. And that's a type of intelligence that is very sophisticated. It's only been found in chimpanzees and, and corvids, the members of the crow family so far, so, and of course humans. But before my colleagues and I asked this question, we first needed to investigate whether cuttlefish had the capacity to exert self-control because self-control is also an important stepping stone for future planning, because an individual must deny themselves in the present to obtain better outcomes in the future. So I guess the finding that they have self-control, as is very common in science, opens up new questions. The fact that our cuttlefish were able to exert self-control leads to the possibility that maybe you know they it, it led to a collateral consequence of future planning, but that's something that we have to test for. So
0: how will you tease that out of them? <laughs>
1: It's very difficult and it's still we're still working on trying to set up a paradigm that would be suitable for cuttlefish. In um, corvids, the jays that we work on, there's been a really brilliant paradigm to test for this and that's because jays, they cache food, so they store different food items in different locations and they do this for future consumption. And they go and retrieve these different food items based on the perishability of the food items. So they have different perishability. For example, they like to cache both worms and nuts. Worms don't stay very fresh for more than a few days, whereas nuts do. And so these jays they have the ability to plan for future events uh, based on previous experiences and also based on what they would like to eat in the future. So there's a few different things that you have to kind of tease out when you're you're testing for planning for the future. The main thing is that you have to see if the animal can distinguish between its current state and its future state. And so this might be easily explained by referring to a study that was conducted in human children so in order to see if human children could dissociate between a current state and a future state uh, and therefore potentially have the ability to plan for a future state children were given a bowl of pretzels and they would eat all the pretzels and uh, then pretzels if you've ever eaten them they make you quite thirsty and so at the end of eating this bowl of pretzels, all the kids would be thirsty. But prior to giving them a glass of water, the experimenter would ask them, now, would you like a bowl of pretzels tomorrow? Now, the majority of the kids, uh, the children said no, because they couldn't, they couldn't imagine a future in their, where they would want pretzels in their current state of thirst. <laughs> in other words, they couldn't dissociate a future state where they might want pretzels in their current state <laughs> where they were just thirsty. Right. Um, and so that's kind of the paradigm that we try and use to test for animals to see if we can dissociate current and future states so they're not just driving their decisions on what they want in the current moment. They have to be able to think about what they want in that future state and it has to be different from their current state. <music>
0: When we come back from our break, Alex Schnell explores the implications of the lowly cuttlefish sharing with us a skill that we once assumed was ours alone. And I tell her about my own experience with a very smart octopus. Our program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big astrophysics, the very small nanoscience, and the very complex neuroscience. And the mission of the Copley Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Alex Schnell. it's so interesting how you are you you can adapt the way we study humans to to other animals that we can't speak with but we can we can find and get the same results mm-hmm. but as you get those results as you start to see some similarities that we for a long time thought were ours alone what does that do to your thinking about the rest of uh, the animal kingdom? Anything?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for so long, comparative psychology has this long history of saying, oh, this is unique to humans, this is unique to humans. And then we started finding similar cognitive features in primates. Okay, so primates are the pinnacle of cognitive complexity. Uh, but then we started finding very similar features in corvids and so much so that the corvids, the crows, the jays, the ravens, they're now referred to as the feathered apes. Uh, now we're finding you know, cognitive features similar even in more diverse, in, in more animals that have, that have broken off from the vertebrate lineage 550 million years ago. And by that I mean the cephalopods. They diverged that long ago and yet they're showing similar cognitive features. And so I think what it really teaches us by finding these similarities and differences as well is it helps us pinpoint the origins of these cognitive capacities, uh, where they could have evolved, how they could have evolved. And it makes more sense as well because it, it, it would be odd that humans would just have evolved all the cognitive complexity with all the other animals Showing nothing that's similar, so we're not saying that they're, they're exactly the same features, but there's definitely similarities. And even if the the animals that we're studying are only showing prerequisites of what we see in humans, that would make more sense.
0: I guess I asked you that question because I had an interesting experience with an octopus in the in the aquarium in Naples, oh, uh, Naples, Italy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, there were 50% of the octopuses knew how to get a shrimp out of a bottle by twisting Mm -hmm. off the cap, and the other 50% didn't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And one of the ones who didn't know how to do it watched one who did know and watched her do it. And when given the chance, the one who hadn't previously known, just from watching once, sailed over, whipped off the lid, and took out the shrimp. (laughs) And after that moment, I found it very hard to eat an octopus. I wonder if people's attitudes are going to change the more we know.
1: Potentially. I think that the more they learn about animals that are so far removed, alien-like from ourselves, the more they become connected and interested and potentially interested in conserving that species. So, for example, take... My Octopus Teacher. I don't know if you've seen that documentary. No. But it's about this diver, this free diver in South Africa, Craig Foster, that has an experience with an octopus uh, where he continually goes and visits this octopus day in and day out. Uh, And from his point of view, forms a connection with it. And the octopus is very curious. And I think the most interesting thing for the viewers is this is a animal that is not particularly social you know out of the 300 species of octopus most of them are, are quite antisocial. but it's curious by this diver and it swims over to him and they're constantly touching hand to tentacles and they have this really beautiful connection uh and i think that moved a lot of people uh it showed a different aspect of this octopus that might normally be considered as slimy or cold or alien-like but um this guy formed this friendship with this octopus and <laughs> i think for that reason the documentary went completely viral and uh was nominated for an oscar actually a couple of weeks ago it's so, called
0: uh, my teacher the octopus My Octopus Teacher?
1: My my Octopus Teacher.
0: My Octopus Teacher. I have to look for Mm -hmm. it. Well, I wonder sometimes if we, uh, when we say let's not anthropomorphize animals, uh, what Mm -hmm. we're saying is let's stick to our human narcissism, thinking Mm -hmm. that we can't possibly be anything but the only ones who have Mm -hmm. all these capacities. But we'll know if people like you, and you in particular, follow this path. Because are they, are they thinking? Are they planning? Are they mm-hmm. making decisions? Mm-hmm. Even was Franklin training you not to experiment with him just to bring him food?
1: <laughs> Maybe. <Yeah. laughs>
0: We've kind of reached the end of our time, but we always end our conversations with seven quick questions, roughly uh, in the area of science. You you game?
1: I am. Let's do it.
0: As you look back, can you remember the first thing that you were curious about?
1: Yes. Uh, I think the first thing I was captivated by was a relative of the octopus and cuttlefish, actually. It was a sea hare that I came across uh, in a rock pool at my local beach growing up, I was probably five. And a sea hare just looks like a giant marine slug with um, little antennae that look like rabbit ears, hence the name. Uh, and I think I became super curious because I picked it up and it inked all this purple ink and I, I dropped the poor thing in shock. But ever since then, I haven't kept my head out of rock pools or the ocean for that matter.
0: So you weren't repelled. You were curious enough <laughs> to go back for more. Exactly. <laughs> what made you want to be a scientist?
1: Um, I think I was so captivated by the ocean and all its critters that I didn't... I, I, just, I remember speaking to my mum's friend when I was about eight, and she told me that there was a job where I could... Um, just investigate the, you know, the water and, and its critters. And that was the title of the job was a marine biologist. And since then, yeah, since I was eight years old, I thought, well, that's what I'm going to be. If I can spend all my time at the beach with my head in the water, then uh, that's definitely for me.
0: <laughs> Next question. What part of your research do you enjoy the most?
1: It changes. I think when I'm having a challenging time in one part of the research, then I'm I'm hoping for it to move on to the next, <laughs> the next part. So for <laughs> example, when I'm working with animals, I really enjoy it. But when, then when you reach a challenging part, you kind of long for, oh, I wish I was writing the results or I wish I was publishing mm. right now. And then when you're in the middle of publishing, you miss working with the animals. So yeah. it
0: just depends. <laughs> so as a scientist... What was the best moment you've ever had?
1: Um, to be honest, just recently, the, the self-control paper in Cuttlefish, uh, it was astounding the, uh, by the, the way it was received, how well it was received by scientists. I had some really lovely messages from a lot of scientists that I respect Uh, that wrote to me congratulating myself and my colleagues on the way that we designed the experiment. And also just from the general public, there was so much interest uh, and that felt really nice because a lot of the time I think you work on projects where they might just, after all the work, the results might only reach a very narrow range of um, people, whereas this paper felt like it had a lot of impact Mm -hmm. and a lot of interest and that felt great.
0: And. The next question is a corollary. What was your worst moment?
1: <laughs> My worst moment? Uh, probably the first time I had some equipment malfunction. It wasn't really a malfunction. It, I actually lost some very expensive tags that we were meant to tag animals with, six of them, um, that were... A, in the range of seven hundred dollars each, and I just felt terrible. I was in my first year of my PhD, and it felt like the worst day, you know, of my life. But then my PhD supervisor was very kind, and he said, "This stuff happens." When I was in my first year of my PhD, I damaged thirty thousand dollars worth of equipment, so <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> sounds, like yeah, it
0: sounds like a rite of passage. Yeah, it's like something you have to go through to get,
1: exactly. to, get to the next
0: stage. <laughs> What gives you confidence?
1: What gives me confidence? I think chatting to other scientists that are interested in the work, uh, seeing designs that, that, um, that are successful, experimental designs, seeing experimental designs that are not successful as well but having the capacity to go back, make the changes and work through the challenges.
0: Okay, last question and one that m- means a lot to me. How do you think mm-hmm. we can help people develop a greater love of science?
1: Um, I think that we're heading in the right direction. There are so many podcasts and also um, media channels now that are connecting the general audience with the science And that's really, really important so that the science just doesn't stay within academic uh, groups. So really having shows like this, for example, where you try and explain science in simpler terms where people can obtain an appreciation for the science and what it means uh, connects people to the science and perhaps the animals that we study. And with that, I hope, uh, you know, that triggers motivation and, and, and interest to continue learning about science or to continue learning about the particular animal.
0: Well, you do a great job of transmitting your own enthusiasm and oh, passion you. for the science that you do, and I think that helps enormously. Oh, thank you. I've had a wonderful time talking with you. Thank you so much. For, did you have to get up extra early in Australia to, to do this conversation?
1: No, no, I'm an early riser anyway, so it's it was fine.
0: <laughs> okay, time to go in and get your morning squirt from Franklin.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on the show. This has been lovely. It
0: was great. Thanks so much. This has been Science, Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Alexandra Schnell is a Royal Society Newton International Fellow. She's a member of the Comparative Cognition Lab in the Psychology Department at Cambridge University. She did the cuttlefish self-control experiments while she was on a fellowship at the Marine Biology Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. This is the last episode in the current series of Science Clear and Vivid. You can get a preview of the next series featuring all women scientists next Thursday. And the new season itself begins the following week, June 24th. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid, and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.